We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fun. All right. We know where we were coming out of this global pandemic or endemic or living with it, whatever we are doing, that uh, all of a sudden the flu took off and there was respiratory illness and such. Uh, as we sort of unmasked and went back out into the, uh, into the wilderness, things have certainly settled down there. But we remember the hunt for especially kids, pain medications and antibiotics and such. And apparently that still seems to be an issue. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association and is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Happy St. Patrick's Day and thanks for having me on. And happy St. Patrick's Day to you, too, as well. Yeah, No, never mind. I'm not even going to go there with green medication. That's just going to get silly, and uh, we're going to misinform somebody, someone terribly. All right, so, um, Justin, we've talked about this in the past. We remember coming out of the pandemic and the flu of uh, a while ago and such, and we kept hearing that more and more was coming in. How come this continues to be an issue here? Where are we with this? Well, I think what we're seeing is the vulnerabilities within our supply chain have really come out uh, in the open. Uh, as you mentioned, we've seen it on the over-the-counter products uh, for everything from pain relievers and fever uh, remedies to um, now uh, in the prescription space, we see it on a number of products. Uh, at some point, there was over 32 critical medications that Health Canada is tracking that were in short supply. And there, there are various severities of, of shortages, but... Um, what we're seeing, I think, is twofold. One, we, we do have unprecedented demand, and it's well above seasonal averages, and manufacturers look at planning several years out. So they're always playing catch-up in these types of scenarios where demand goes up. In some cases, we saw it as high as 300% more than what would typically year-over-year year be the consumption pattern. So even with the increased production, it's uh, almost impossible for them to keep pace and we're seeing it because uh, the RSV season is one of the worst ever. Um, and what you typically see is secondary infections, ear, throat, chest, um, that requires antibiotics. So there's more demand and pressure on those products. Right now, we have about seven suppliers in Canada. It's not a lot. Um, and about five of those are in short supply. So there's only two that have product available right now through pharmacy wholesalers. And uh, that's part of the reason why you're seeing you know, sporadic uh, supply for this. It's not that every pharmacy is out right now of children's amoxicillin, but some uh, are going to take a day or two to catch up and uh, have supply. You talked about supply chain issues, and we've certainly heard a lot of that in the last little while. Where does this come from? Say, where does my Tylenol come from? And, 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 and do we need to be actually physically manufacturing it here? Yeah, absolutely, we do. I think that's probably the biggest lessons learned uh, coming out of the pandemic is that we have so much dependency on medications and other products too. We saw it early on uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic with PPE, where we were very much dependent on uh, foreign countries to import uh, our material. And in the case of medications, because of um, price compression, uh, the price that uh, governments and uh, the price set um, for particular prescription medications are, is becoming so low, 
manufacturers are outsourcing much of the production of these uh, medications. So they're sourcing the raw ingredients, the active product ingredients, and in some cases actually uh, you know, assembling them in countries like India and China. And when there's uh, shortages or issues with labor in factories, uh, whether it's in you know, parts um, like India or even in the U.S., um, then you see the challenges with the supply. Uh, if we had more domestic capacity, more factories built in Canada would create jobs and it would allow us to have much more, I would say, stability within our supply chain. And also government should stockpile these for emergency uses. We should have the ability to be able to distribute to the provinces and not have to import from other countries in emergency situations. And obviously, as you've talked about with all levels of, of every of everything, of every industry, I think the big lesson out of global pandemic is how how we were not or haven't been or are not self-sufficient. Um, we talked about this months ago. Is it just still there? And we, we heard that were more that was coming in and, and things were being done, but obviously that hasn't been enough to keep up. Mm-hmm. Well, so much of what we experience is usually two weeks out from what happens in the U.S. from supply runs and issues with manufacturing and sourcing of raw material. And, and that's the case for amoxicillin. The U.S. had a shortage, um, which does impact uh, Canadian manufacturers. And that's trickle-down impact. Um, and it really depends on the product. When we were uh, faced with, and we still do have for um, adult cold and flu, as well as uh, pain relief and fever medications for children, you know, we're seeing better supply. You have seen a bit of catch up. The manufacturers are producing about 35% more than they typically would, but they can only ramp up so much. They only have so much labor, so many factory lines to be able to do this. But, you know, we put in place rationing and we're suggesting that uh, again for certain products, making sure that, you know, the people who need it, who get it um, and not, you know, over the counter is the issue there where we don't have panic buying and hoarding. Um, but, you know, there is replenishment. And I would say with the amoxicillin, the manufacturers that are short are indicating that by April, they'll uh, have more supply. So we'll have, you know, six to seven suppliers instead of two uh, producing uh, on shelves um, for amoxicillin. So it, it is the ebb and flow of the season, whether it was cold and flu, COVID outbreaks, uh, and now RSVs, you see the peaks and valleys. And we did get a bit of recovery through um, January and February. And now we're back into a bit of a precarious situation. Only got a few seconds left, Justin. Could we see this coming or did it take a global pandemic for us to make uh, realize what we're, how, uh, how unself-sufficient we weren't? We were. Drug shortages have been an issue for a long time, and uh, I think this sort of blew it out in the open and exposed the vulnerabilities. But, you know, we've been seeing less and less manufacturers produce product in Canada for several years, uh, and this has exasperated the problem. But certainly it's something that policymakers in the federal government and the provinces need to take uh, serious action and look at long term uh, solutions to it. Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, talking about uh, shortages of pain medication. And the good news is they're doing their best to keep all the stores, shelves, stocked. Justin, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. Next week, uh, the president, U.S. President Biden, uh, makes his first official visit to Canada. And usually the first thing the prime, uh, the president does when newly elected. Uh, but for us, it was 18. So we'll take, you know, the 18th country he's going to visit. What the hell? As long as we get there. And I know there's the old thing about COVID, but what about the other 17? All right. Uh, let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, how are you today? 
Pretty good, Scott. Long time listener, first time caller. How you doing? <laughs> good, thank you. So uh, your president is coming up to visit with Justin Trudeau uh, next week. Does anybody in the United States of America even know about this? Do they care? Do they know he's going to be out of the city for a sleepover? <laughs> well, that's an interesting term. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's uh, of course the big news here today is whether or not Donald Trump gets indicted, and of course it's it's uh, St. Patty's Day, so. Um, we have uh, the Irish delegation at the White House. And so, yeah, we know about, I mean, it's in our guidance for next week that he'll be visiting Canada. It's probably long overdue. But uh, to Biden's point, when I speak to members of the administration, they consider Canada a very strong and close ally and um, not necessary to visit off the top because we don't have to shore up that relationship yeah. like we have to do others. So it's it's all it's kind of a backhanded compliment that he didn't show up first. Uh, we're not taking it uh, personally. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Justin Trudeau has his own problems to deal with with election interference in the last two elections and such. Is any of that making headlines in the United States, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's interference in Canadian elections. And, and now we're getting it both federally, provincially and municipally. Yeah, there's the, that is a huge concern because it not only affects Canada, but of course it affects the United States and affects everyone around the world. And that's a huge, huge problem. And it's part of um, the concerns that uh, Biden and the, his administration have about she going to Russia and cozying up to Russia during the middle of the Ukraine war. So, yeah, that's an issue that has been discussed and uh, dealt with at national security levels in the U.S. over the last few years. What do you think the priorities will be for this meeting? I think we're I think according to at least according to those in the administration I've talked to, it's uh, continuing to the support for Ukraine. Uh, the continuing uh, and then, you know, rolling back some of the stuff that um, Trump did regarding lumber and uh, dealings, you know, between the U.S. Uh, trade relations between the U.S. and Canada. And then, of course, making sure that we're all together now on on the major issues as we move forward into 2023. And China's on that uh, short list of subjects to be discussed as well. Uh, do you think the prime minister and the president get along? And the reason I'm asking this is because, again, the, the, the prime minister is having some tough times up here right now. And there's lots of commentary about how, well, I'll come right out and say it. Biden thinks he's a lightweight. Well, that, um, yeah, I've heard that here too, but I don't see that in the, now. I don't know their personal relationship and, and, you know, none of us do. Biden is of course, obviously, uh, uh, has a little more seniority. That's a nice way of saying he's older. Um, and, and he has a lot more experience. But I don't think anything that uh, in his administration has ever indicated that his relationship with Trudeau is that uh, between a father and a son or a heavyweight and a lightweight. I think he uh, the respect that's been shown has been a, a, a paramount to the respect he's shown all of our close allies. Uh, do you think we will hear anything on border issues and and strengthening up those between? Because obviously, when you talk borders, when you think U.S., it's Mexico and the United States, not the Canadian border and the United States. Uh, has there been much chatter about that? Yeah, of course there has, because they've had to switch some uh, um, border patrol. They've transferred some border patrol from the southern recently from the southern border to the northern border to deal with 
immigration problems. And uh, well, they believe that it's uh, illegal immigrants from the South that have gone North to Canada and are now trying to sneak into the U.S. that way. So, yeah, I'm sure the border um, situation will will be discussed. I don't think that's going to be a high priority. What about energy pipelines, that sort of thing? Uh, we remember up here that uh, when Biden came in, he canceled the Keystone, but he's working on others. Any update there? No, the, they have kept that under wraps in the administration over the last few. I think that what you're going to see is the stuff that they've been working on once he meets with uh, uh, C- Canadian officials, that they'll both come out. Uh, Trudeau and Biden will come out and make a joint statement about that. I think there's something in the offing as far as trade goes. We'll have to see. I know COVID is part of the uh, discussion at this point, but I think it uh, there will be some kind of informal or formal um, discussion about uh, trade and that they'll probably make an announcement about relations between Canada and, and, and uh, the U.S. in the form of a statement after a, they meet in Canada. All right. Give us an update on what's happening uh, in your neck of the woods, uh, specifically with the Republican side and, and who their next potential candidate is going to be. What what where is where is you were talking about Donald Trump and the story you were watching today? Where is that story? Well, the story is that, you know, uh, there's according to Michael Cohen, Donald Trump is effed and uh, his gut tells him that he's effed. And that's going to there is all kinds of talk that the DA in Manhattan is trying to arrange security to make sure that he can indict and get Donald Trump served an indictment either by the end of today or sometime early next week. There is a growing concern uh, for security for Trump and for the Manhattan DA and getting Trump from Florida to New York to be served. That All of that has to be worked out. Um, You know, Donald Trump always wanted to make history. He's the first president to ever uh, be impeached twice, and soon he's going to become the first president ever to be indicted. So I guess in some ways, Donald Trump's very happy. He's making history. Uh, So so he's actually, he's, this is coming to a head. He's actually going to New York or will be? We don't know yet. Uh, That's what has to be negotiated, I'm sure. Um, There's also the, um, the spectacle of the, Mar-a-Lago search, which could lead to an indictment. His attorney has been called back before the grand jury there. There is uh, the January 6th committee, and that investigation at the DOJ is progressing as well. And then there's the the Georgia investigation before a grand jury that is also progressing. So Donald Trump is staring down the barrel at a long, long, long list of um, entanglements in our legal system that will not, uh, on the outset, prevent him from running and, in fact, may increase his ability to, to raise money among his faithful who will go broke for him. But for the rest of the uh, Republican Party, it's another example of why there is beginning to be a breakaway from the, the base. And in the end, Donald Trump will be left with the, the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses, but the 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 Republican Party itself may be in the middle of disentangling themselves from Donald Trump and looking for greener pastors else pastors elsewhere. Is Nikki Haley the answer there? We've got a few seconds. 
Well, it depends on what the question is. If it's who's a bigger buffoon, then yeah, Nikki Haley can answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, uh, columnist for Salon.com and the Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks for the chat. Be well. You too, brothers. We've certainly been talking a lot, uh, especially the latest, uh, that being uh, Poland offering jets to Ukraine um, in obviously trying to defend itself against its uh, the Russian invasion. The International Criminal Court has also issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Not that that means anything. But let's bring in Dr. Lubomir Luchek, a professor with the Royal Military College of Canada and is with us now. Lubomir, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am fine. Thank you very much. So what is standing out to you uh, more today? The International Criminal Co- uh, Court has uh, uh, issued this warrant, which I'm sure he will ignore, or the fact uh, that Poland is providing jets to Ukraine? Uh, what a question. Well, sticks and stones will break his bones. So I guess I support, I support the, uh, the MiGs being transferred to Ukraine so it can defend itself against uh, Russian aggression. But that said, uh, names can hurt you. And uh, Mr. Putin being defined now by the International Criminal Court as a war criminal, which, by the way, I think is uh, apt. I mean, it's a, it's a good description of this man. Uh, he's only been charged so far for the abduction, the kidnapping, basically, of hundreds, if not thousands of Ukrainian children by the Russian Federation. But I'm sure there'll be other charges laid eventually. It's not likely to, you know, to result in him turning himself over to The Hague or, you know, standing trial. But it does have one positive benefit. He's now stuck inside the Russian Federation for the rest of his life, unless he wants to face the music, and I doubt he does. So that's punishment himself, in a way. Um, he's not going to have access to his, you know, his ill-gained billions uh, stashed around the world. He's going to be stuck in that state, which is collapsing um, its economy is tanking. It's going to lose the war. It's going to be a pariah state. It is already a terrorist state. So, you know, it's kind of like not quite a prison, not quite what he deserves, which is frankly the high jump. But it's the beginning of the end. Uh, so he's uh, he, he this will this will stop him from literally traveling anywhere outside those borders. Yes. So as I understand it, because the moment he leaves, he would be issued with, an, you know, the arrest warrant has been, has been sworn out. Now, Russia does not recognize the international court, nor does Ukraine for that matter, nor does the United States. But most of the rest of the world does. And Ukraine certainly wants Mr. Putin to face justice for what he has done. Um, and most of the rest of the world does. So we'll see what happens. But I think it. I think even as a the leader of a state called the Russian Federation, so-called Russian Federation, um, he would be very ill-advised to attend, say, an international conference in Rome or something like that. Um, you know, he may be able to go to a country like the People's Republic of China or Iran or North Korea. Again, not exactly high on most people's lists. Um, you know, but that's it. So talk about how significant um, Poland and the Jets are. He has spoke out and said he will destroy them, uh, what have you. We all remember months ago that jet fighters were a big issue. That's when NATO gets involved. Where are we with that? What's the significance of these Jets? Well, I think, again, part of the, the problem Ukrainians are still facing is that they are subjected to these attacks by various missiles and and uh, 
uh, drones and so on. The jets will help clear the skies over Ukraine. It's a gesture at this point. I mean, there's only four of these MiGs uh, being transferred from Poland, as I understand it. Others may follow. I mean, Poland has taken the lead in helping Ukraine resist the uh, the aggressor. Um, they were the first to begin talking about the Leopard 2 tanks. Um, that and the British, uh, and then later the Americans all got involved with their tank heavy tanks. I think this is just sort of the beginning, again, sort of the, the dam is starting to break apart. Um, countries in the NATO alliance are starting to provide other kinds of weapons platforms. And this will all, of course, be very helpful for the spring counteroffensive when Ukraine begins to significantly retake territory that was uh, conquered by uh, the Russians in the early part of the war. Lubomir, what are your thoughts on the president of China and Russia getting together, meeting? I mean, is this... <laughs> go ahead. You're giving me all sorts of one-liners here. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, look, Mr. Xi is an astute politician. Uh, of course, now he is like Mr. Putin, president for life. Uh, he's just assigned himself the, you know, the ability to be the president of the People's Republic for another round and probably forever. Uh, so these are two men who recognize that their lives depend on the stability of the regimes that they lead. Um, step away from that, particularly in Mr. Putin's case, and you're a dead man. Perhaps not so much for so much for Mr. Xi because, you know, the Communist Party of the People's Republic of China is a huge organization. There are factions within it, and he's not beloved by everyone. But it's not likely some harm would come to him. Putin, on the other hand, you know, has um, started a war that was unnecessarily has cost the Russian economy billions, has cost tens of thousands of lives uh, in, in Russia. I mean. Frankly, I don't feel very sorry for them, but I have to—I at least have to pretend a little bit. Um, you know, the devastation he's caused in Ukraine, this can't be easily repaired, and it won't be forgiven anytime soon. Ukrainians, as I've said before on your program, never were Russians, aren't Russians, and certainly never ever will be now after this. Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall. He's broken, and all of Putin's uh, horses and men won't put him back together again. So, you know, it's, it's a, um, a, a no-win frankly, for Putin. And for Mr. Xi, it's probably uh, not going to do him much good either. Dr. Lubomir Luciak with us, Professor Royal Military College of Canada, uh, joining us. Lubomir, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, and happy St. Patrick's Day to you, too. Back at you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is uh, St. Patty's Day, in case you didn't know. Happy St. Patty's Day to you, uh, whether you're celebrating or not. And um, the one thing about a Friday is sometimes these celebrations tend to carry on through all weekend. That being said, um, universities and colleges have had to deal with uh, situations in regard to partying over the last few years, several years, I guess. Uh, and now uh, there are concerns over what may take place this weekend for St. Patrick's Day uh, in Westdale. Is that a concern? What sort of uh, preparations are made? Sim Singh is with us, McMaster student, union president, and with us now. Sim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm well. I hope you're too. So far, so good, Sim. So what is planned for this weekend? What is different from this weekend uh, than any other weekend? What, what, what do you have to do at the university? Mm-hmm. So, um, firstly, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's wonderful that some student insights are being taken into account in a public forum. Um, yeah, so this weekend certainly will be interesting to say the least. 
wonderful opportunity for people from around uh, our communities to come together and have a fun time with family and friends. Um, nonetheless, we hope that it's always done in a way that is safe and consideration of those in the neighborhoods in which we all live. So as part of that, um, the MSU in collaboration with McMaster has done a lot of information sharing students as well as others about their, not only their rights, but also their obligations to the community, how to ensure that they're being safe for themselves and how they can respect those around them. And we're really hopeful that in the coming days that people are able to you know, have a great time, but do so in a way that is uh, safe for all, uh, not only themselves, but those in their communities as well. Um, what about extra patrols by police, that sort of thing? It sounds like really Sim, all you're trying to do is just say, hey, here's some guidelines, you know, have fun, have responsibility, uh, be responsible, uh, responsible about it all, and, and, and obviously aware of others that are around you. Is that what this is about, or is this about uh, you can't do this, you can't do that? Clarify it a bit for us, Sim. Well, for sure. No, it's definitely uh, the earlier. So, of course, there have been parties that have taken place that have you know, caused disruption to the community. But normally, these are only things that a small number of individuals take part in. The vast majority of students who attend McMaster are law-abiding citizens, and they contribute positively to the McMaster community. I know the one big reason I became involved in this amazing Sam, uh, is there anything uh, festive or going on in the university or, or at the university this weekend, or are these just like individual parties that people or you know students might have with friends? Yeah, normally there are events that take place that are personal nature, so people have uh, parties with their friends. But um, I'll just re- reiterate that normally these are events that are safe. They're done in a way that is respectful for those around them. And um, yeah, students normally, it's great that we have this sense of community in which students can feel comfortable with each other and actually uh, form positive relationships as well. Um, there are no in the large scale sanctioned events as part of this, but um, especially compared to last St. Patrick's Day, um, we definitely done a lot of outreach to ensure that students are aware of how to be safe and how to also um, be respectful of all those around them. And we have no doubt that the vast majority likely will uh, abide by all laws and be um, respectful to community members as well. Uh, the fact that it's winter now, um, is that the same as homecoming? Are you expecting something lighter or what are you expecting, Sim? No, very much so. So I think um, normally St. Patrick's Day celebrations and the general, I guess, the sense of what takes place in the community of McMaster is much smaller in scope than what happens um, during homecoming. Um, so, yeah. Uh, or fake homecoming, as it's known. Um, and that's why we, uh, we're happy to see that students are much more respectful and um, that some of the communication efforts that we have taken have really been seeded by large numbers of the community. Once again, uh, many of the things that do happen during fake homecoming are not motivated by McMaster students. In fact, there are those yeah. from other institutions or those in the community who are motivated by what I think are often quite malicious social media groups that will, um, I guess, uh, support this unsafe style of partying and that attracts um, others who are not from McMaster to engage in, um, in, in I guess, um, in events that are less than safe at times. So luckily, at, uh, during St. Patrick's Day, we often see a lot less of that and we're very hopeful this weekend as well that everything that takes place will be safe uh, in a way that is still enjoyable for those who take part, but not um, nothing that causes harm to those around them. And you bring up a valid point, Sim. It only takes a few to uh, to set it all astray. Sim Singh with us, McMaster Student Union President, St. Patty's Day, not only everywhere, but at McMaster. Uh, Sim, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Uh, have a wonderful day. 
We certainly know and and followed uh, daily what was going on uh, with the uh, murder trial for uh, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, the killing, of course, of Tim Bosma, Laura Babcock, and and. Remember when that was finally come had come to a conclusion. Uh, now we are hearing these names again far too soon, and it turns out Ontario's highest court has, uh, in one situation, dismissed Adela Millard's appeal for his conviction for his. Uh, the killing of his father, but however, the court has applied a recent Supreme Court decision that entitles Dylan Millard to seek parole after 25 years and not 75 years. To explain it all, Susan Claremont is with us, columnist for the Hamilton Spectator, and is with us now. Susan, uh, Susan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Man, as anybody who covered this, I can't imagine what you're thinking right now. But let's start with the appeal for uh, on the convic- uh, conviction for killing his dad. The just the the judge, it appears, just said enough's enough. There's no more delays, and we got to get on with this. That's right. Yeah. Earlier this week, uh, Millard asked for more time, uh, which you know was was ironic given that she's the one that asked for this appeal in the first place, and the guy has nothing but time. He's been locked up in prison for 10 years. So, uh, you know, it started with with him making that request, uh, the panel of judges throwing it out. And today they actually went forward and and heard his uh, appeal on his dad's murder. So um, so where is that setting? So that that case is now. uh, Well, I'll let you talk. What what has happened with the father's case? It was. The quickest appeal that I have ever seen happen at the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, took just over an hour. Millard made his case badly, and uh, the three judges who formed the panel uh, said they'd take a, a short recess to decide what to do next. They left the courtroom for about five minutes, came back told the Crown attorney that they didn't even need to hear from the Crown because they had made up their mind, which was they were just missing the the appeal. They said, absolutely no way. The trial judge made no errors. Uh, We're we're not going to entertain this. Uh, The other thing, though, that happened, Scott, was, and we knew this was going to happen, there had been a, a decision recently by the Supreme Court of Canada that overturned the idea of consecutive sentences. Mm-hmm. So Del Millard, a serial killer convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, was actually serving one life sentence with no chance of parole for 75 years, 25 years for each of the murders he was convicted of. The Supreme Court of Canada's decision has changed that and today, for the first time, Dylan Millard was told that on that particular murder, he would now be serving life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. And we expect the same thing will happen to his sentences in the two other murders. And when will we hear of that, uh, Susan? When do we hear about the other two? Yeah, so the, the judges reserved their decisions on the Tim Bosma matter and the Laura Babcock matter. So it will likely be several months before uh, we find out whether they will order new trials in those cases. And essentially, they will be rubber stamping a reduction in sentence on those cases. 
But, you know, I think it's really important to point out, Scott, that uh, just because there's a reduction in the sentence does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that um, uh, Della Millard or his co-accused Mark Smitch will be released in 25 years. All it means is that after serving 25 years of their life sentence, they will have the chance at applying for parole. Uh, whether or not they get that parole uh, will, will depend on a hearing and, and a lot of other factors. And I, I can tell you that it's, it's unlikely, very unlikely, that they will get a, uh, actually be released from prison or get any chance of parole uh, in 25 years. They, they will be in, in prison for a long, long time. And and many, uh, as you've as you said, Susan, we're we're concerned that that may happen. And no, he won't be, or they won't be released. But the issue here is, Susan, is twenty five years he can go through this process. So then, unfortunately, the families feel uh, who are already victimized, you know, feel that they need to go and, of course, relive all of this every so often. I mean, that's the drag in all of this. Is you know, I mean, he he's serving the rest of his life no matter what. But now he's got to continue. He now has the option to put the family through hell every few years you're absolutely right scott that that's the that's the real horrible thing about all of this is you know every time he he goes through an appeal process which has been happening all this week or in the future anytime he uh goes before the parole board of canada and asks for his freedom the families of of his victims will be uh, brought into it all once again. Um, Charlene Bosma, the widow of Tim Bosma, said that, you know, she she thought that when uh, the trial took place in 2016, uh, which lasted for six months, and she was in the courtroom every single day, she yeah. said that she thought that, that she was doing that so that she could have some sort of ending to this, so that... Um, her daughter, so the, the baby that uh, she and, mm. and Tim had together, would never, ever have to deal with Della Millard and Mark Smitch. And now the reality is that, that their child will have to deal, deal with this. She'll be a young woman by the time uh, that 25-year poll eligibility is up. And in one way or another, it's, it's going to impact her. As it is now, after ten years, which at least you think, well, they were going to get twenty-five uh, a piece. Um, is this set in stone? Is this done? Is this over with? Is there is, is there anything? Because I remember even during the Bernardo case, the whole idea was to avoid any of this stuff from happening. We all knew he wasn't going to get out, but again, just the tap dance that that revictimizes the families. Is is this set in stone? Is there anything that can be done here? Uh, not at this point, not without some, some new law, some new ruling from the Supreme yeah. Court. I think at, at this point, uh, we've gone back to the way that it had been for, for decades, uh, prior, which is, you know, you serve a life sentence for first degree murder with, um, uh, no chance of parole for 25 years. Um, it, it's, you know, it's a real shame for the families and um, for, you know, in other cases across Canada as well, where there have been multiple convictions. Um, this is not like in the United States where, you know, people can be sentenced to 90 years uh, in, in prison. It just doesn't work that way here.
How's the family dealing with all of this? Any idea? Yeah, you know, I I keep in touch with uh, Tim's mom and dad, uh, Hank and Mary, who um, I got to know very, very well during the trial. And uh, it's been a a heck of a week for them. They um, have watched the uh, appeal hearings by Zoom every day, uh, although they did actually even go into the courtroom uh, for one day. And they went so that they could be there to to help support Laura Babcock's family. That's the kind of people wow. that, that Hank and Mary are, where, where they knew that the Babcock family was, was also in pain this week, and they wanted to be there for them. Um, it's been very difficult, and, you know, particularly uh, on uh, the day when Della Millard spoke publicly for the very first time about Tim's murder. Dellen didn't take the witness stand at his own trial. And so he has never spoken publicly about about him and about the murder. And hearing Millard um, even utter Tim's name was really, really difficult for Hank and Mary this week. Mm. I can only imagine what they're going through. And that's what's so tragic in all of this. Uh, Susan Claremont with this columnist for the Hamilton Spectator. Make sure you read all of this, uh, the Susan's work uh, in the spec on this. And of course, unfortunately, we're hearing the names Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch again. Susan, thanks for the time. Great work and be well. Thank you so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, The president of China is meeting with the president of Russia. How can that only be anything but good news? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University with us now. Elliot, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. I remember early in our conversations, China was trying to appear neutral in all of this. Are they still neutral? What is the objective of this meeting? They've always been neutral in favor of Russia. (laughs) <laughs> There's never been any ambiguity about that. <laughs> uh, they, they clearly uh, support them within the U.N. Security Council and the broader U.N. system. Every vote that comes up, uh, they, of course, uh, the two leaders had a meeting. This is like their 37th meeting. So they see each other every now and then, and they're both germaphobes and don't like to travel. So th- this is a high-level relationship. But uh, they did meet uh, a year ago or so, uh, February 4th. And that was basically a green light by Russia, uh, from China to Russia. They signed a, basically an alliance without end and without borders, and et cetera. So the fact that he's going now, uh, I don't think should be taken as uh, he's been thinking it over and he's decided he doesn't want to support them or does want to. No, I think there's quite other purposes for this. And of course, we suddenly have a very changed context for this meeting. Uh, that being what? <laughs> the criminal court has just said they plan to, the International Criminal Court has just said they wish to arrest Mr. Putin. So, so what does that mean, Elliot? Does that mean if he sets foot outside of Russia, he can be arrested? It, a lot of that's still being explored. If he goes to countries where the court's jurisdiction is recommended, is, uh, is accepted, yes, indeed, that is what it means. It also means, just back where we are starting this conversation, we should continue it, but it does mean that Mr. Xi Jinping is now going to find himself unexpectedly in the situation 
of mm. putting out his hand to shake the hand of, in, of a war criminal that's got an arrest warrant against him. That, I think, might change the optics and might even change Mr. Xi Jinping's reckoning of how the future evolution of this relationship should go. Yeah. Obviously, the West supporting uh, Ukraine and, and, and propping them up. Are we to assume that China's doing the same thing with Russia? Because obviously, China, uh, Russia's not doing so well. At what point does China support Russia the way the Allies have supported Ukraine? Russia has been uh, under sanctions, as you know, that are very broad and very far-reaching. The Russian economy is a fraction of the Chinese economy. China is vastly uh, entangled in the global trading system. So until now, uh, China has not wanted to go so far as to actually violate those sanctions or have their companies, either their private or state-owned companies, get tangled up in those sanctions in order to directly support the military side of this equation. China has been a major benefactor to Russia, diplomatically, as I just suggested, but also economically. Mm -hmm. They are buying vast quantities under long-term contract of gas and oil from Russia. By the way, India is buying even more. China's number two in taking advantage of this fire sale. Uh, and that kind, of, that kind of absolute monetary support, combined with the clear diplomatic support that they've been giving, uh, has been very helpful to Russia. And again, they have signed this agreement. You know, there will be no boundaries, no limits, no no end to what uh, this alliance can lead to. He's there, I think, to reassure Mr. Putin that, yes, China still stands behind him. The uh, peace plan, this is what everybody's looking to right now, Scott. China may be the only country that has actual leverage over Russia. Is China really ready to do what they just did in uh, the Middle East and say, I want you both sides now to sit down. We want you to come to some Mm. kind of a peace because, uh, as they've been saying, this war in Ukraine is affecting the global south. We are leaders of the global south. We are leaders of the world. You do need to do something. Uh, Xi Jinping put out a 12-point peace plan. (laughs) But the opening, I think we talked about this, the opening clause in it is there should be no violation of state sovereignty. Of course, that's exactly what Russia is so will Russia or sorry, China try to look like a hero here um, if this seems to go south for them? Will they try to look like a hero on the world stage, considering what they're thought of on the world stage as bringing these people together? Can China gain world uh, uh, confidence by trying to arrange a peace deal here? Or is that out of the question? Well, we don't we don't know that that's the purpose or the outcome of this visit. It's It's being speculated that because he just released this peace plan, and now he's going to Beijing from Beijing, which is unusual for him, to Moscow, that uh, there's a, a big peace plan afoot. I, I'm not at all confident that is the case or that Russia would be welcoming it in any event. No, the bigger question that some people's mind is, is this going to signal a deepening of the support by China because China does not want to see its uh, its partner in this defeated. It can't afford to see this relationship go south because then it looks bad for Beijing, because the two of them were going to reshape world politics together by Beijing basically tacitly supporting, and and in other ways importantly supporting the invasion and the occupation and the success, therefore, of this venture. One of the interesting things to note is that China's foreign uh, minister has just had a meeting 
a virtual meeting for the first time, I think, in a long time, and perhaps the first time ever, but with uh, Zelensky's foreign minister. So China is now directly in touch with Ukraine at the same time that this this meeting is pending. But meanwhile, uh, Mr. Putin is looking more and more like he depends on China. This throws more advantage to China. So is this an opportunity for China to use its leverage for long-term superiority, Hmm. resource and all that? Or is it a possibility that they are now going to be shamed by being put in the same category as a war criminal? I would lean toward the first rather than the second possibility. But we are in a a slightly different situation today. It is a bizarre scenario. Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. It's not over yet by any means. Elliot, is always fascinating to talk to you. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. And same to you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, yesterday, as you know, uh, Hamilton Center uh, by-election, the seat left vacant by Andrea Horvath when she left to become mayor. Sarah Jama is continuing on the tradition of NDP in that riding. To talk more about all of this, Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So much of a much of a conversation chatter about this by-election at Queen's Park. Lots of times election by-elections just come and go and such. But this one seemed to be grabbing a bit more attention. Was that the case down there? Yeah, I mean, this was definitely one of the more controversial by-elections that we've ever seen, largely because of Sarah Jama's comments, uh, you know, in the past as an activist that seemed to be, you know, taken as being quite anti-Semitic, so much so that she had to issue an apology over it. Sarah Jama actually, you know, it got so hot to the spotlight and the scrutiny that she began to cancel interviews with media outlets just to kind of stem the bleeding. But nevertheless, though, I mean, she won with uh, more than 50 percent of the vote, close to 60 percent of the vote. And, and it really goes to show that, you know, regardless of what happens in some ridings in Ontario, regardless of who the candidate is or what they may say, you know, if it is a safe seat for a particular party, it will always be a safe seat. And this was no different. So, you know, this was a riding that was held by Andrea Horvath for a long time, a strong NDP riding. And it continues to be that way, despite all the controversy that Sarah Jama found herself in. Uh, with that and all of the attention around this by-election, are you surprised the voter turnout was so low at 22%? Because usually when it's getting this much attention, it means people want change, but not the case here. Well, the, the, the voter turnout in the last general election was pretty low. So, you know, by-elections typically don't tend to attract a lot of attention. And that's also because, you know, the parties don't put a heck of a lot of resources into it either, right? Which is why I think the controversy around Sarah Jama's comments was being raised by, uh, you know, the progressive conservatives and particularly the liberals as much as it certainly was, right? Because if you can't really get a foothold with all of the voters, Uh, in that area and and you don't have the resources to deploy in terms of going door knocking and and, and really doing a lot of the volunteering efforts in that riding, well, then maybe you can try to knock a couple of points off of the candidate, maybe wedge your way in just a little bit uh, down the middle. That's that's certainly what the liberals were hoping to do. Uh, But low voter turnout in a by-election is certainly not, you know, terribly 
um, incongruent with what we see with other by-elections. Absolutely, yeah. So what about impact? What is, does this change anything at Queen's Park? Uh, one seat in, one seat out for the NDP, so they're pretty much even, Stephen. Does this change anything? It changes not a single thing for the opposition. I mean, they were reduced to 31 seats, the NDP in the last election, and they will continue to hold those 31 seats. Um, you know, they, they don't really have a lot of power because the Ford government has uh, some 80 through 82 seats in the Ontario legislature now. Um, what it does mean for the NDP, though, is it is a bit of a victory, right? This is the first by-election since uh, the general election. The first one since um, Marit Stiles was named as the leader of the NDP. So it does show a bit of confidence because Sarah Jama is such a you know big disability advocate. It means for the NDP, they have a new face now in there who can take on the Ford government when it comes specifically to disability issues. And we saw in the last election, Ontario disability support payments became an issue. Uh, the premier got uncomfortable with it so much so that midway through the election, he decided to increase the supports that people on disability actually receive. So this will mean that they have now a uh, a new voice and potentially a stronger voice to deal with disability uh, issues uh, because Sarah Jama herself uh, uses a, a wheelchair for mobility. So that will, you know, from a visual perspective, from a vocal perspective, she'll bring kind of a new, fresh perspective to Queen's Park. Where are the Ontario Liberals right now, Colin? I mean, we heard rumors a few weeks ago they were chasing Mike Schreiner. Then it was Bonnie Crombie, the mayor of Mississauga. Where are they all at, at this point? So, I, you know, one of the main things that happened at the Liberal Leadership Convention, uh, the annual general meeting, rather, that happened in Hamilton a couple of weeks ago was the party decided that they were going to go with a one member, one vote system. So that essentially means it democratizes the leadership and gives more people a direct say in who that leader is going to be, as opposed to a lot of liberal insiders. That really has opened up the field for all kinds of candidates to hop in. You, you know, we have Nathaniel Erskine. Smith, who's a federal MP, who has always kind of been a thorn in the side of Justin Trudeau and not really one to toe the party line, you know, he needs that broader appeal in order to be able to mount a successful challenge. You've got Yasser Nakvi, another federal MP who used to be the attorney general in Ontario. He doesn't necessarily want one member, one vote, because for him, you know, having that party insider support, having been such a longtime party member, that bodes well in his favor. So, you know, that one member, one vote system has definitely changed the game for this leadership. But now we're starting to see a lot more names come up, right? Bonnie Crombie's name has certainly popped up. Navdeep Baines, a former uh, minister under Justin Trudeau, uh, has also popped up. We've got Ted Chu, um, Adil Shamji. Uh, Stephanie Bowman and a handful of others. It seems like everyone is interested in either, you know, being the leader or using the leadership as a vehicle to raise their profile. The, the question is, when is this leadership going to be? Is it going to be in late 2023 or is it going to be in 2024? Because that gives us, a, you know, a good enough runway for these leaders to really start building up that campaign, getting uh, volunteers, getting resources, getting funding and financing uh, to mount that leadership challenge. So it's, it's a long game for the liberals. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more dips and valleys uh, before we actually see, you know, the final contenders for this leadership race. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you heard about this or not. And, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about it, that Toronto is working on a casino, and I guess it's slowly coming to be. And uh, and and many are concerned in Niagara Falls at what kind of impact a Vegas-style casino is going to have in Toronto on Niagara. They expect to see uh, an impact on foot traffic and finances when this thing opens up uh, West Toronto this summer. Jim Diodati, mayor of Niagara Falls, is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, and thanks for having me, Scott. So this is interesting, Jim, because, you know, uh, one-time casinos and destinations such as yours and your towns, uh, obviously, uh, they go hand-in-hand. And then it was seemed everybody kind of wanted a casino, and then that kind of died off. But now it seems to be coming back with Toronto. What are your concerns here? Well, the the biggest concern is that we just seem to want to keep cutting the pie into smaller pieces, and, and it's going to impact the outlying casinos like Rama and Windsor and, and Niagara Falls. We've done some preliminary calculations and we figure the new updated, upgraded major investment uh, that they're putting into the casino in the GTA is going to probably peel away 20, 25% right off the top. And, and I mean, I've always said you have to play to your strengths. And Toronto's strength is they have millions of people living right there. So if it's a matter of convenience, we're not going to beat them. Uh, if it's a matter of destination, then Niagara Falls would win out because we're an international, iconic location known around the world. So my suggestion has been, and I've suggested this to the province, and, and I've said that I think we need to look at the model. It's changed a lot since casinos started in Ontario, and we have to focus on the international, specific the U.S. market, and look to grow the pie instead of just cutting it into smaller pieces. You were saying how it's changed. How has it changed? Well, you know, at one time, casinos, people went there to gamble, and they went to Vegas to gamble, and Atlantic City and Macau and Singapore to gamble. Well, now they go first to do some sightseeing and go see some sporting events and go for dinner and shows, and then while they're there, they'll gamble. So it's gone from the number one reason to one of the lower reasons why they go. So our suggestion is not to focus just on gaming revenue, but to utilize gaming to drive tourism as one of the offerings on the buffet of fun and excitement. So it's one more thing you can do, one more reason to come, one more way to leverage tourism. Mm. And really, when you think about it, the, the interest in this kind of waves, Jim. So wouldn't it be in everybody's best interest not to just focus on that aspect of it, especially with the proliferation of online gambling? I mean, you see it everywhere now. Well, you're right. And that's changing the game. That's changing the world. That's changing everything right now. So focusing obviously on the future, which is digital technology and things that are going online. Now, the good thing is before all of the online were offsite illegal websites. Well, at least now we've brought it in house where we can actually bring revenues from offshore to inside the country. So that's a good thing. And now we've got to capitalize on it. And the other thing we need to look at is the model we created in Ontario is different than the model they have in Vegas and Atlantic City and other areas. In those areas, the private sector owns the casino. They get their license from the government. So they take care of their own property. They pay for the upgrades. They pay, pay for the investments. But our model here in Ontario, the government owns the assets. And, and there's very little incentive for the operator to put in major dollars. And I don't mean minor upgrades. I mean, major investments of hundreds of millions of dollars. So under this model, it's probably not going to happen. Are your hands tied here? Is there much you can do? Well, I I, I don't think they're tied. I mean, obviously, and clearly it's a provincial issue, 
So we've been having, I will say, ongoing discussions with the province, and this has been going on for several years. And the idea is that what worked yesterday isn't necessarily what's going to be working tomorrow, and we need to evolve. If you don't evolve, you're going to become extinct. So what we're saying is let's not wait until it's too late. Let's be proactive, and let's think about how we can maximize this so everybody wins. We don't need to have winners and losers because that's a loss. It's got to be winners and winners. So the whole idea is growing the, the, the pie bigger and, and I think focusing our cannons on other markets, specifically the U.S., and get them to bring their, especially now with the exchange rate, there can't be more incentives for Americans to come now that the Arrive Can app has been removed at the borders. Yeah. So if if the casino opens in Toronto, I guess it's just a matter of time, but when it opens, uh, are there winners and winners or is that creating losers then? I mean, how do you create, how do you create a winner with a Toronto casino? Well, one of the things, and I got to give credit to the OLG and to the provincial government, Ministry of Finance, we opened up the OLG stage in Niagara Falls, 5,000 seat state of the art theater. Yeah. And, it's and I, hear it's am- I hear it's amazing. Oh my God, Scott. Uh, we were there for Billy Joel and I didn't know his parents had their honeymoon in Niagara Falls, but they've got Pitbull and they've got Kevin Hart and Rod Stewart. And every day they announce new acts. And I got to tell you, it's probably the nicest theater in North America. No seat is more than 150 feet from the stage. And they've got sawtooth seating. So everyone's got a great view. That's great. Those types of things, knowing that the number one reason people come isn't to go gambling. So bring them to town with entertainment. And while they're here, they'll stay in the hotels, they'll eat at the restaurants, go to the attractions and visit the gaming floor. These types of investments are great. So I tip my hat to OLG. That was a great decision. We just need to get more shows and do more of this type of thing. So in order, uh, you know, when the when the Toronto casino goes in, and I'm guessing that's all done, right? It's a done deal. It's going to happen. Is that accurate? Y- yes, it is. It's done. So, so what you're looking for then is something that can help Niagara Falls expand what it's doing. For example, the new theater, what have you. You're looking for more, um, uh, more uh, exhibits, more to do in Niagara Falls and more support that way. Is that accurate? It is. So there's three things that we're suggesting we need to do. Number one is more, as you mentioned, more things like the OLG stage with great acts and bringing Cirque and all these tight top acts. That's number one, expanding the offering of things to do. And number two, refocus our marketing efforts and, and specifically target the U.S. audience, because I can tell you the U.S., casinos along the border get a lot more Canadians than we get Americans. So that's bizarre, though, Jim. That's bizarre, Jim, considering the value of the dollar. I, well, I scratch my head too. I don't understand. And I know things are a little different there. You can get free drinks and you get to smoke. And I'm not suggesting that we allow people to smoke, but we need to at least look at the model. Why are they beating us at, at, at our own game? We had a casino first. Why are they beating us at our own game? So number two is to, to target the U.S. market. It's a massive market. We're within about a day's drive of almost half the population of North America. So even that rubber tire market. And then the third third thing I'd say is twofold. One is we're working with the province on um, expanding our airport. We have an airport in Niagara. Most people don't know. And it's kind of funny because right now, about 2 million people a year drive right past it to fly out of Buffalo. So if we could put our airport into play and look at the gaming model. The model they use in Vegas is very different than the model here where the operators own the asset so they will reinvest in their own assets. It's unlikely they're going to put major funds into a government asset. So we need to look at that model and look at the ways that we can evolve and change and make it better. 
Is there a lot of room for uh, for Niagara Falls to grow on the footprint that it's in, Jim? Well, there is. We've got a lot of opportunities. We've got a lot of land. And, you know, it's funny, even though we're the number one leisure destination in Canada, we're a global icon, we get 14 million people a year. There's no reason why we can't do much better. I mean, the Mall of America gets 40 million. Vegas gets 40 million. Orlando gets 60 million. There's no reason we can't take 14 up to 20 or 25. I think that's an easy uh, a hurdle to jump over. We just need some creative thinking, some innovation. And I think some of the things we just talked about could be the key to really up in those numbers. Well, it's all certainly there. That's for sure. As I told you before, I was down in January and uh, the place looks great. It's hopping. Jim Diodati, Mayor Niagara Falls, talking about a casino going into Toronto. Jim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Happy St. Patty's Day. Back at you. Scott Radley is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, host of the Scott Radley Show. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. How are you? So far, so good. So uh, here we are the day after. Hamilton Center continues to be an NDP riding. I guess um, everybody who made a prediction was correct. It, it stayed the way it was. Any surprises for you? Uh, well, so, you know, it's rare, Scott, that I will come on and say I guessed one thing right. <laughs> the one thing I guessed right was that the turnout was absolutely miserable. I'm telling you, like, I get that it's March break, but either the candidates were so uninspiring or people in that riding simply don't give a rip or something, but 20% or what was it, 21%? That 22%, is, yeah. 22%, that is, that's humiliating. And I'm sorry if you are someone who's listening who lives in that riding. That is a humiliating turnout for any kind of election when you're talking about having a democracy and having a chance to vote. I'm sorry, that is just unacceptable. It really that is. being that being said, Scott, usually there is a low turnout when people don't want change. Yeah. There's a high turnout when people do want change. Do you think that's just the situation here? People like the way it was. I'm not going to bother. It'll be her. Uh, I think more to the uh, the fact that nobody probably thought they could change it, that it was going to be an NDP win without anything. But nonetheless, you know, like, look, I don't want to be preachy, but I have taught my kids, and I hope other people have too, that even if you're not wildly inspired by the candidates, we are in a rare position in this country, in this province, in this city, that we get a chance to vote. So yeah. you should use it every single time, even if you think that it's not going to make any kind of big difference how much time could it take and again what so so yes sarah jama is the illegally officially properly all those words you want to apply elected representative from hamilton center and you can say that she has a mandate of some kind but because so few people voted what kind of mandate is that i'm not i'm not taking anything away from her you know, legality. I'm not saying that she's somehow improper. Not, nothing like that. But yeah, but you could say that for lots of, you could have said that for lots of elections, you know, like this person only had so many, you know, so why do they, you know, I mean, the, oh, no, no. the prime minister's I, I, lost the I popular have. vote for the last two elections. Yeah. No, and I have said this, Scott, that when you get into the 20s or 30%, it doesn't scream that people are really behind you. But then again, yeah. they're not, they're even less behind the other people. Again, I'm not trying to take anything away from no. her right to be in that seat it's just embarrassing when we as a country and when we as citizens have a chance to vote yeah. and we completely shrug our shoulders and then here's the other thing i guarantee you and we should probably start the clock right now 
I guarantee you it will not be long until we hear complaints about something that's happening, and many of the people complaining will have been people who didn't go and vote. Good point. Uh, all right. I want to touch on before uh, you're out of here or before your show starts, uh, St. Patty's Day and the situation mm. around McMaster and such and how they're, you know, sort of reading the riot act to keep everything under control. Um, you know, I, I can completely understand you don't want kids overrunning a neighborhood and, and all of that crap. And, and, you know, we were all kids once sort of thing. But it just seems that it's is an all or nothing fair. And it's unfortunate that there can't be some sort of common ground here. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, so back in the fake frosh week when they had that whole thing in Westdale, one of the points was, why doesn't Mac open up some sort of space on campus so you don't force them? Because you know they're going to do it, right? You know so why not? That's my it. point. Why not just have a party on your campus because, and supervise it in security because, and whatever? Because then your fear is, okay, if something bad happens on campus, what if some kid, like this has happened, kid drinks him or herself into a stupor and then dies? Now, well, is that any difference than going? Yeah, but is that any difference than going to Oktoberfest every year, or going to a New no, Year's Eve no, party, or going I anything? Agree. I mean, what's the difference here with this in a concert? I agree with you. Except what I'm sure what the school is thinking is, if we do this as an organized event on campus and something blows up, we're on the hook. If we don't do this and they go and choose to do it somewhere else, well, it's terrible and we don't want to affect the neighbors. But that's not us who's now responsible ultimately. It becomes this thing where you're pushing the kids. Again, we, we have to assume, we have to believe that kids are not going to do this for anything to work. But if you yeah. know they're going to, you're either pushing them off campus to do it or you're having them on campus with the risk to you. I don't know there's a great answer either way, um, but th- that, that is my expectation of why they're doing this. They don't want the, the possibility that something bad could happen yeah, but under their universe They're on the hook. Every university has pubs. Every university has concerts of some sort. You cross your T's, you dot your I's, you buy insurance. I mean, that's life. That is, and that is certainly something that I think a lot of people in the neighborhood around here would say we'd like to see you do that. But that's you know, keep your school within the keep your school within the bounds of your school. I mean, school is more than just the classroom. University is certainly more than that. Like, it it just seems silly that you're just closing the doors. You're pretending the problem doesn't exist and you're pushing it all onto your neighbors. I think that's poor organization on Mac's part. And I think this could be really handled a lot differently and a lot more efficiently. No. Well, I look at what the city ended up doing was creating a whole bunch of new bylaws that basically just duplicated other bylaws under a new umbrella and said, see, solved. Well, we'll we'll, we'll see if it's really solved or if it really does anything. I mean, all the the laws that they needed already existed. They just reworked a bunch of them and said, hey, we got this brand new thing that's going to be way better. Well, why didn't you use the bylaws you had before to stop it? Well, isn't there a show? Isn't there a show? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, this very much when I do this discussion sounds like that scene in Spinal Tap when they have the, uh, the amp that goes to 11. And you go, well, why not make 10 the highest? And he goes, but this one goes to 11. Like, they just can't see. Why not use the bylaws you have? But we've got a new bylaw. Yeah, but why not use the other one? Yeah, but this one goes to 11. <laughs> That's a great really analogy. Nothing, like, nothing like a great Spinal Tap analogy when you're talking about university. All right, Scott Radley. You know what else, to, this- Scott, to, finish, to finish with that one? No, to finish with that one, it's from Spinal Tap, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. I'll leave leave that with you. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your spectator. Have a great show, Scott, and a great weekend. Thank you.
too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. Well, Scott, this last word is from Mr. Lowe. Thank you to all first responders and to all those who put on a uniform each day to keep us safe and secure. Your efforts and sacrifices each day are so appreciated by a grateful nation. Thank you, and happy St. Patty's Day. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.